Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N-A Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And as always, our lovely co-host, Miss Kimberly Dillon, welcome. Excited to be here today. I'm excited too uh, for the fact that we have a great guest who has an exceptional resume that you just pointed out. Uh, maybe we can actually help people model the way they should show up if they really want to be a speaker, if they really want to be, you know, found. Maybe it's important for you to have all your things in one place. And we were just talking about that. So anyway, for uh, before I get deeper into uh, a tangent, I want to welcome Dr. Daniela Vergara uh, to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So, Refresh my memory. We met originally in Mexico, right? Mexico. Mexico City. City. Yeah. Yes. Mexico City. Just to be specific, uh, which was, uh, and it was uh, a conference, I believe, like a medical cannabis kind of conference there. Cannabis Salud. Yeah. Cannabis oh, yeah. That Cannabis Salud. That's right. That's organized by Lorena Beltran. Yes. We met there. I think this was November 2019. So this was before COVID. Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. Yes, I remember it was pre-COVID because we had an interesting session outside the uh, hotel room. So you wouldn't have that kind of session these days with COVID, I think. Yes, that's true. And then I think, yeah, we we um, it was right with Dia de los Muertos, around Dia de los Muertos, because oh, there yeah. parades and yes, around that time. It, it was parades. And I remember, so, all right, now you refresh my memory. First of all, I didn't realize that they're starting to treat uh, the Day of the Dead like Halloween. 
all the kids are running around asking for candy. I've never experienced that before. And I'll never forget Steve D'Angelo and Andrew D'Angelo. They dressed up and went in the parade. It was pouring rain and they had the paint dripping down their faces. So I know they had the paint, <laughs> like the, the, the Katrina type paint. And I was so jealous. I was like, I wanted the paint. I know. It was yeah. super good, man. They did a great job. But I was, I, we stayed in the same hotel and I remember they were taking so long to get it. And even the next day, Andrew still had some of the paint on his face. They couldn't take <laughs> off. So anyway, uh, maybe instead of reading your exceptional bio and everything, maybe you can tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Where do I start? I am, um, I am an evolutionary biologist, at least my, my PhD is in evolutionary biology. I graduated from my PhD in 2013 from Indiana University in Bloomington. I used to work with host parasite coevolution. And one of the major questions in disease dynamics, which is why do individuals not clone themselves, right? Like, why won't you have a clone of yourself? And one of the major hypotheses is because you want variation. And why do you want variation? Well, you want variation to avoid disease, right? So you, if you think about every single individual being the same, if there's some disease that attack them, they'll, the whole population would be gone, right? And so I was working with a clonal population of snails. So there's the snails that reproduce both clonally, strictly clonally, and also um, sexually. So I, and they are native from New Zealand. So I got to go to New Zealand for field work, um, which is pretty cool. So I did that. Um, and I was thinking a lot about sexual and asexual reproduction. And right, that, like, basically there's, there is something called the cost of males. Like why would you have males in the population? Because males do not bear offspring, right? It's females the ones that bear offspring. So why would females incur in the cost of, mating with a male. And one of the reasons is for diversity. So I was thinking about those things um, when I finished my PhD and I moved to Colorado with my husband. We moved to Colorado and at that time, cannabis was being legalized recreationally. So I moved in um, September, 2013 and it was the whole process of legalization. And um, the person who is, was my PhD co-advisor and now close collaborator, Nolan Kane, he was starting his lab in the University of Colorado in Boulder. And he was coming from a genomics world and I wanted to learn genomics and bioinformatics. Like I wanted to learn how to program. And he was working with sunflowers. So I joined his lab and I was originally gonna work with sunflowers, but it was a Friday night. And I was with my husband and his friend who was visiting from out of state, and um, eh, we um, we they they convinced me to go into cannabis. And I was like, well, "Why don't you go into?" <laughs> <laughs> and then, so I was like, "That's exactly how somebody would do it, too." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I was, I was like, "Well, you know, like everyone knows everything about weed. Like weed, like everyone should know everything about weed." And to my surprise, so that was a Friday night. And then Saturday and Sunday, I spent looking at what was done in terms of genomics in cannabis, like genome and et cetera, and, and nothing had been done. And something that really caught my attention while I was doing this research is that cannabis had 
males and females and hermaphrodites. So I was coming from, you know, thinking about sexual reproduction and why males and females, and then cannabis has males and females and hermaphrodites. And then there's this different groupings, um, the sativa, indica, are they for real? Like what, what, what is that? And those were the questions that I was going to ask in sunflowers about species um, and hybrid species. And so I went to, to Nolan and, and I told him like, hey, Nolan, why don't we instead working cannabis? And he was like, that's a great idea. Oh, wow. And I know. I was freaking out. I was like, oh, my God, like this guy just met me. You know, this was October 2013. And I met him in August, September. And I was like, this guy just met me. And I'm just going to tell him that I want to read. Like, <laughs> and, and he was like, that is a great idea. So this was October. 2013 and then by December 2013 I don't know how the word spread but there were reporters there were and then people asking us questions and we were the um we were the uh experts in cannabis genomics <laughs> in two months and that and then you know most of 2014 we spent talking to lawyers what could we do what could we not do what could we say what could we not say because cannabis is still federally legal. You know, funny enough, I thought that they were going to legalize like three days later, and here we are, and they still haven't done it. You know, what, what I got out of that, a couple things. Number one is, if Kimberly would clone herself, she would be less overwhelmed. So I got that. And also, <laughs> and also seahorses, there's no reason for males, uh, it sounds like. If you can figure out a way how to make, uh, you know, males uh, either carry uh, children and give birth like a seahorse, that's the, there really is no, no reason. If you can impregnate without a male, then there really is no need for that. That's, that's what I got from that. <laughs> yes? I'll put it there. Just, you know, okay. <laughs> I was like, all of my animal knowledge comes from one guy on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't know. You don't know that. Uh, you don't know that seahorses give birth. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's the, the TikTok guy told you that, right? <laughs> no, there's a whole thing about like animals that reproduce, like who have that type of reproduction. But like, I feel like those animals didn't have a lot of predators. Yeah. And like it was okay for them to be similar, but when you have a lot of predators, you need to have more diversification. I don't know. The guy on TikTok is also eighteen. So, <laughs> well, I think I think what what Danielle brought up is a really interesting point because people always talk about you're going to take my DNA, you're going to clone me, you're going to do that. Well, it, doesn't it make sense that you want to perfect the DNA before you actually clone? Because if you're cloning you're going to actually replicate everything that's in the person that you're cloning. So if they have predispositions to diseases, et cetera, you're cloning something that's going to replicate itself over and over. And the more you replicate itself, the more chance you have for, you know, genetic uh, uh, issues that come up. Well, I mean, I think everything has predisposition to some sort of disease um, sooner or later. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when people say that you're going to take my DNA and you're going to clone me, I don't think that they really understand how cloning works and how difficult it is to do. And that you cannot just, you know, I'll take your DNA on your spit, you know, like spit here, or I'll 
right? Whatever, I'll take a blood or a sample from you. And then- I saw you were pointing the hair and then you looked at me and you're like, no, I'm going to say, <laughs> say something else. Well, because hair is really hard to take DNA out of, right? <laughs> but I mean, in your beard, you know. Yes, yes, thank you. But, uh, but hair, hair is really hard to, to take DNA out of. Um, and so whatever you, you're doing for DNA, if, you, if I have a little vial of DNA, I don't know that people really understand how hard it is. Like I cannot just go to my kitchen and make a clone of myself. It does not work that way. And, and so I don't think that people really understand what it means to sequence a genome and to understand the DNA of an organism. And that really, when you have a genome sequence, whatever it is, is it Kimberly or it's me or it's a cannabis plant or it's an elephant, whatever it is, you're just understanding how the genes work, the size of the gene, where genes are, um, et cetera. But you're not really cloning something like you're not making an individual that it's the same as that's. No. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you said that because people are have this impression of what they see, like CIS, uh, whatever, Miami. Oh, you know, we're going to get DNA and we're going to create. Or they look at the tabloids where they made the sheep and they made the clone of the sheep and all this other stuff. It It is not a quick process because when people actually people contacted uh, contact us, I think more often than not about. Where is my report? Where is my DNA? I sent it in a week ago. Well, there's a whole process to be able to extract and uh, and purify and sequence and, and do all that stuff. It's not like, uh, you know, a two-second thing where we see on TV. So definitely glad you brought that up. Yeah, and that what you're talking about, you know, like CSI Miami or CSI Las Vegas or whatever, I find it fascinating that the same guy knows how to do a DNA extraction. He's also an entomologist. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a paramedic. So he yeah. knows about everything he knows about. Well, it's iced tea, but he's also a rapper. And yeah. uh, so he can do everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I bet that you get that a lot because it's human DNA, right? So so at the end, I mean, if you go to, to NCBI, which is a governmental website, and you, you can download the genome of, I think Craig Venter was one of the first people whose genome was sequenced. And I think that you can download his genome. His genome is representative of Craig Venter's genome, right? Now we found out that there's many, many genes, that we differ in many different ways in our genomes and that there's genes that I can have that he cannot. And the fact that, you know, I'm a female and he's a male definitely makes a difference in the genome. There's some genes that, 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 that differ so, um, so I don't think that people really understand that. And I don't know if you've had this, Len, I would be curious to know, but I, I remember giving talks, like there's certain fragments of the population that I would rather not give talks to. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember some talks and I don't know, maybe because you're a guy, but you know, I'm a Latino woman and I'm short. Um, so I've gotten people saying like, I've grown weed since before you were born, which is maybe true. That may be true. It's like, and you're going to monsantize my weed. And it's like, what, is, what did you just say? And so there's some people that I, I'm kind of like, you know, like, 
Good luck. Well, that raises a good point to me because I want to know how the study of... Now I have a thank you. I understand what evolutionary biology, that's the field, right? What does that... But what do you do specifically as it relates to cannabinoids and the cannabis plant? So, okay, so an evolutionary biologist basically... What 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 we do is to understand how things change through time, whatever it is, right? How a population changes through time. Um, and after I started doing genomics in cannabis, I started looking at how our populations related to each other, how our individuals related to each other, are individuals more similar to each other in their genomes, right? So for example, if you have, I don't know, me and my son, our genomes are going to be very similar because we share 50% of our genomes, right? I gave him 50% of my genome. Um, if we, and then looking at, okay, what are the cannabinoid genes? How do individuals differ in the cannabinoid genes? And especially because understanding how individuals differ in the cannabinoid genes, you may be able to understand how these genes affect the physical characteristics. So the expression of the genes, right? So, so, um, and, and so that's mainly what I did at CU. Now I moved, now I'm doing something different, but um, working still with, with cannabis for hemp. Um, but, uh, but that's what I did in, at CU Boulder was mainly looking at population structure in the genome, how are individuals similar or different? And then um, the cannabinoid genes, yeah. <clears throat> Let's back up. Uh, where, did, where did you grow up, grow up? I grew up in Cali, Colombia. Okay. And, and where is that in relationship? Like, I've been to Cartagena. Where is that in relationship? Uh, you have Medellin uh, kind of on the map, so I can visualize so, where that is. Yeah. So Cali is in the southwest. So okay. it's one of the major cities before you get to Ecuador. Um, it's in the... Yeah, so so Cali has the, the departments over there. We don't have states, we have departments. So the department has a boundary with the Pacific Ocean. You still have to cross a mountain to get to the Pacific Ocean. So it's probably around, I don't know, eight hours away to get to the ocean. So there's three mountain ranges in Colombia. So when you get the Andes, you know, from Chile, they get to Colombia and they form something that's called a knot. Um, and in that knot, um, three mountain ranges kind of go, right? Like the Western, um, Central, and Eastern. And so Cali is kind of the uh, border of the, of the mountains in the Western side. So if you cross the mountains, then you get to the coast. Well, it looks gorgeous on Google Maps. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of <laughs> now can visualize it. <laughs> but you, you know what you were talking about? Well... I've been growing longer than you and all this stuff and generate longer than you've been alive. Last time I was in Colombia, I had a guy that came up to me after my talk and basically with really, really broken English was trying to tell me that his family grew for generations and he was really upset about big business coming in and trying to take over. So I'm like, well, if you grew for generations, maybe... Uh, you're part of uh, a cartel of some sorts. So I want to be really, really careful on the conversation. But my advice after you actually asked me was, 
what about going with the flow? Since you guys already have farms, you already know what to do, just legitimize it and you can create a business out of it the same way that you controlled the business before. And I, he did kind of crack a little bit of a smile, but I'm not sure if I was I was talking to the right person or should have even given any advice to the guy that was in the audience. But I thought it was, uh, it was really interesting when he said for generations and kind of rang that bell with me. Okay, that's who you are. That's why you were growing for generations. But it's similar to here, right? Like who are the people that have been growing here for generations? Is the people that have been selling in a black market. Right. It's it's similar, but I don't think I'm really worried about, you know, Bob and the Emerald Triangle, who's growing weed uh, on his farm, uh, you know, cutting me up uh, in pieces and shoving me in a in a back of a trunk or anything of like that. I, w- I don't have that kind of fear. No, Murder Mountain is real. Yes, exactly. Yes. I'm back in Humboldt County, right? Like way up there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's not romanticize cartel versus our own, like. I feel like we create like a violence image in like Latin America and South America. And we have just as much violence with different names, I think, personally. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think it's just a lot more organized or was a lot more organized there and a lot more corrupt uh, than, Colombia? than it was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that Colombia, it's really corrupt. I mean, I think, I mean, here, I, I've, I've been looking for parallels because I think that the U.S., politically is going towards Colombia, you know, like the gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider and wider. Um, now, you know, we, we have had precedents that um, their conmans, um, you know, whether blue <laughs> color or white color, they're still conmans. And so, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it, there's similar parallels. Um, I think that the problem of Colombia is that, I mean, the, the government, it's an oligarchy here. It's also kind of an oligarchy. I mean, I, I don't think that here the Congress people, the senators really represent the people because they make most of them make huge loads of money, which, you know, normal people do not make the amount of money that many of our representatives do. So um, so I think that there's some parallels. The problem is that in Colombia. There's never it's always been an oligarchy. The oligarchy is the owner of the news, of the TV, of right, and the oligarchy, which is the owner of the government, they're also the ones that right now are um, are the owners of of the drugs. And because in Colombia, um, it's such a good climate to grow anything or almost anything, um, it's really easy to grow plants like like the coca plant or or cannabis. And so it's really easy to, well, it, it, you can have export of these drugs. And I really want to stress that the consumers, you know, like 80%, 90% of the drug that is produced in Colombia is consumed here in the U.S. or in Europe. So whenever there's a consumer, right, it, it doesn't stay there. You know, yeah, there's cocaine consumption in Colombia. Yes, mostly by the upper class. Um, but it's not like most of the co- the cocaine goes here or to Europe. So there's always, there's, there's a demand. And so therefore there's going to be a supply. And so for me, in my personal opinion, if Colombia legalized drugs, that would be extremely lucrative because they say in Colombia, like, oh yeah, no, you know, like we produce bananas and emeralds and, and it's like, yeah, sure. But which is the, the where is the money coming from? The money come, is coming from 
cocaine, whether legal or illegal, we, we, don't, we, we have to be honest about it. But because it's the government that are the ones of the owners of the business, they don't want it legalized. Same thing as Humboldt County in California, who were the ones that voted against legalization for what was it like three times in a row, four times in a row? Yeah. It was Humboldt County, California. Same mm-hmm. thing, you know, and it's the government saying like, oh, no, we're Catholic. You know, we, we don't want drug legalization because we are we're we're Catholic and, and we're, you know, conservative. And it's like, no, dude, it's because you own the business. <laughs> right. They're killing someone else. They're killing the poor people, but not. I, I have a business idea. How about we go back to Colombia and we make coca tea and it's going to be the best stimulant, way better than coffee, way, way better than anything. And we can sell it all over the world. and It's legal. Can we do that? I don't want to deal with, I mean, I, I do not want to deal with any drug lords. You know, like here, I, yeah. I'm in the legal side and I, with my job, I cannot be in touch during my working hours with any sort of cannabis, even living in a legal state as I was in Colorado. And I am now I'm living in New York, but, uh, but in Colorado, I was not able to touch any THC during my working hours. So let's let's go back to the work that you did uh, with CU Boulder, and then uh, there was involvement of uh, the work that you did with Steep Hill. Maybe you can kind of mm-hmm. uh, connect all the dots uh, because you know we obviously know Reggie Godino is a, a personal friend. You work with Reggie, so how how yeah. did that whole triangle uh, work? Yeah, that's how we started talking because I said, "Oh yeah, I work for him," and we were like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, so I don't know how did Reggie knocked on our CU Boulder door and came all the way from California. And, um, and then I started analyzing data for Stikil. And I have a lot of papers with analysis of data from them. So I did a lot of data analysis with their cannabinoid and terpene profiles, mostly cannabinoids. And um, then I started contracting for Steep Hill. I think that was around 2018 that I started contracting for them. So basically, they were, they were funding my research at CU. And so, yeah, so I was doing da- data analysis for them and writing stuff for them. And then when the research and development team from Steep Hill was... Um, was purchased by Front Range Biosciences. That's a biotech company in Colorado. And I was part of that merger as a contractor. So I went to Front Range and then I worked for Front Range until 2021 this year that there were there was a, a cut in, in personnel and I was part of that cut. And um, since I was part of that cut in 20, it was April, finally, yeah, end of, no, it was end of March. Um, I started looking for a job and there was this opening at Cornell working with hemp farmers in New York state. And I applied and I got it. And I moved from Colorado to upstate New York in a three day drive. Well, at least the weather wasn't that huge of a difference. Like moving from Southern California to upstate New York is pretty dramatic, but Colorado, I think it's not that much of a difference, right? Well, I was going to make a connection that actually how I got into cannabis was that my mom, who lives in Colorado, her church group 
was invited on a tour by Front Range Biosciences. No, really? <laughs> and they gave my mom like a lollipop or something. And it was my mom who told me, she was like, you might need to look into this weed thing. <laughs> and that Great. was in 2016. <laughs> so it's very, very progressive of you, mom. But makes sense. Good advice, mom. Yeah. But yeah, they were doing tours to like, I guess, all the neighbors to be like, we're coming into the neighborhood, blah, 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 blah. Does she live in, in Lafayette? She has property around there. And so basically her church group all got invited. <laughs> and they were all high thinking about God. <laughs> all of these old ladies in her woman's Bible study went on the tour. I think that's the best way to do Bible study anyway, <laughs> any religious study. <laughs> Connect, you have a better connection. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, Danielle, you, you published a, a paper on the difference between the Mississippi cannabis that's grown federally and the cannabis that's actually everywhere else. So uh, can you summarize your findings and I and and I want to also get your opinion why do you think that hasn't shifted in so many years they're still growing this weed that is completely irrelevant to any possible research or anything that's going on anywhere in the world yeah irrelevant is the key word thank you I like it yeah um yeah so this was our collaborator's idea Kent Hutchinson who's part yes. of the paper um, yes. who we work with as well. Oh, yeah, you work with Kent. Yes. yes. Kent is such a cool guy. Um, and Cinnamon Bidwell, um, who are psychologists at CU Boulder. So um, I had this data from Steve Hill, and they were like, hey, you have data from Steve Hill from different testing facilities across the US. We should compare that to the cannabis from that is grown at the University of Mississippi for NIDA. Uh, for the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So what I did, it was actually a very simple statistical analysis to see whether the cannabinoid, the cannabinoid content from NIDA was different from that, from, you know, Denver or Oakland or mm -hmm. I think it was Seattle. That was 2017 that that paper came out. And we found that, yes, it was different. So NIDA has a fraction of the cannabinoid variation that we find in private markets. And then we also found that, yes, um, it was also lower, you know, the diversity is less and the cannabinoid concentration is, is less as well. So that was 2017. And then in this year, actually, 2021, we have a continuation. So part two, the night of the rematch, um, we got a hold of DNA samples from these two, these two samples from NIDA's varieties. And then we then compared the genome, right? We compared, so we, we had compared the phenotype in 2017 and this, and this year we compared the genotype and we looked at whether the, um, the genomes from these two different strains were, were representative of the genetic variation that we see in, in common varieties. And we found that no, that they're not representative, right? So, so now, so we compared the, the, the phenotype and the genotype. And then I make kind of like this analogy, which may be kind of like a dumb analogy, but it's, it's as if I told you like, hey, you can work with dogs, but you can only work with chihuahuas. 
forget about the Great Danes, forget about the German Shepherds, forget about everything. You can only work with Chihuahuas. You're, you're, you're limiting the variation that people are working with. And so what does that mean? That means that all of the medical studies that have been done using NIDA's weed may be biased and may be not representative, right? Because, and there, there was a, there was this, I think it was a 2018, um, uh, there was a 2018 paper. I don't remember the author, but um, they basically said that cannabis was useful. It was a review study. And they said that cannabis was useful for only four conditions. Like um, it was, I think, pain, and um and to inhibit um vomiting after after um after chemotherapy mm-hmm. and then something else i think multiple sclerosis i think it was only three and it's like well yeah you know like they don't talk about epilepsy they don't talk about sleep they don't talk about anxiety they don't talk about these other things because perhaps nida's weed is not useful for any of those because it's not representative of what people are actually smoking like who smokes nida's weed and i've asked it in my presentations like hey i want to see a show of hands who's smoking nida's weed no one it's like the guy that grows it and maybe i don't know his mom lv lv musica who was uh one of those eight people that were left uh that were consuming the nida weed that were prescribed uh for degenerative glaucoma yeah, but then, but there, I think there were only well they they canceled the program, but I think there were only three people left at that time when they canceled the program. Uh, they were getting that weed for you know for that purpose, but at that point, for any what there and I completely agree with you because all the studies that were being used with XJ thirteen any the 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 cultivar that was uh, that was used that was grown in Mississippi and then NIDA cultivar. It, it has zero representation on anything else that was done. So the studies are completely flawed, but maybe there is a reason why they were trying to do that. So I, I'm just putting it out there that maybe there is a, uh, maybe there is uh, some sort of nefarious uh, reason why they would want, because Sue Sisley, Dr. Sue Sisley conducted ah. a study. Yeah. Uh, I was going to mention her. All right. So you, you so talk about it. Nobody, nobody wants to hear about me talk. You talk but about I, it. Yeah, because Sue Sisley, who's actually, because right now I'm in Arizona, but she, she's actually here in, in Arizona. Um, she got a hold of Nida's weed and she was kind of, I cannot give this to my patients. This is moldy. Like I cannot give this to my patients. So I think it's very. Um, well, she had to pay herself to remediate it first. So they did a full remediation of, of the mold and everything else before they actually conducted their study. That's ridiculous. I think it's, it's very, very, um, what's the word, but ironic, maybe. Yes. That, that um, the government is producing shitty weed and then you have these things <laughs> that are illegal, right? That are produ- that are making great efforts at producing these really nice things. Like I've seen weed from dispensaries and these beautiful plants, and they have growers that have been growing it, and, and and so much effort, so much love, so much passion. And then you have the government that is producing this this oregano with mold, right? Like <laughs> what? <laughs> 
Yeah, with very limited uh, cannabinoid uh, content uh, to that. You're, you're yeah. absolutely correct. Um, how close do you feel we are uh, from, like, uh, I would say bespoke cultivars or chemovars? So something that is uh, that you can control that's more personalized for a certain experience. And the reason why I bring this up is because you have so many different components in the cannabis plant, right? So you, we have all these different cannabinoids, we have all these di- different terpenes, and then we have specific conditions. Uh, how difficult is conduct studies because you have all these different, uh, you know, chemical varieties and compounds in the plant, and then you have, you know, personal varieties uh, in in human beings. And if you want to conduct studies that are more associated with, like you brought up, uh, you know, multiple sclerosis, or is it, you know, tremors that are associated with multiple sclerosis? How can we get to a point where we actually have, you know, these varietals are more aligned with this, you know, with this symptomatic condition, with this effect, they're more, uh, you know, efficacious, I guess, for those specific things because of all the different components in the plant. Can we conduct studies or predict any of those analyses? I think that studies are necessary. They must be done. Um, I think that the more information that we have from the plant, the better, you know, chemotype, but also other phenotypic characteristics. But the more, the problem is that, as you said, cannabis produces a lot of different components. It's not just one, it's a bunch of them and in different ratios. And I do think that that entourage effect is a possibility, you know, that there's a bunch of different components that are acting together to create a sensation, to create an experience. Um, we don't know which components, we don't know what the ratio of these components have to be. And we don't know whether, you know, for example, with alcohol, we do know that depending on how you feel, like if you're down, if you just broke up with your significant other, or if you just ate a big piece of steak, you are going to have a different experience than if you hadn't. If you if you slept the night before, for example, you're going to have a different experience. So it's also depending. It's very environmentally dependent, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know that with cannabis. We don't know how much of the environment is going to affect how you feel. Plus, we don't know whether all of these components are going to affect how you feel. So I think that there is a lot of interactions there, right? There is the, the plant. There's the person and there's the interaction. We don't right. know whether the joint that I'm smoking today is the same thing as it's going to make me feel the same as the one that I smoked yesterday. So I do think that, and I, if I'm not mistaken, that's something that you're planning on doing, which I think it's amazing. And I, and I totally applaud that, which is that you're going to have blind studies, right? And you're going to give people you know, like, okay, you're going to have joint number one and joint number two, whatever, and give them an, an blind studies and knowing what you have in that joint, knowing how much THC, CBD, CBN, CBC, terpenoline, pinene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Knowing exactly the amount and then asking people probably blind questionnaires, did you sleep? Did you eat? What did you eat? <clears throat> Are you happy? Are you sad? Did you, I don't know. Well, we're, we're, we're taking it one step further than that because we're actually uh, using a biometric measuring device to measure 
uh, biometric feedback. So we're not only leaving it up to the individual to give us patient-reported outcome, but we're measuring heart rate variability, uh, uh, oxygen levels, all the different things that we can measure as biomarkers. But I think I think the part of my question, like our genetics are our genetics and your epigenetic, definitely environment has a lot to do with it. Our metabolic uh, function have a lot to do with it. But I think where we're still challenged is the consistency on the chemo of our cultivar side. So if you're saying that you're giving somebody a joint of this, I have very, very little guarantee the next time I consume that same joint, that it'll be the same. And we have a very difficult time uh, just as an industry, as a whole industry, a global industry, to be able to create regulations and, and standard consistency. And a lot of the work that you're doing on the chemical varieties and understanding what it is, how can we get to a point where when we, whatever the name is, and I, I, I'm not a big fan of names of, of strains, but whatever that is, that we actually can know exactly what it is anywhere that we go and there's consistency to that. That's and until yeah. we get to that, it's very difficult to do any study. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think, I mean, I think that in order to get there, right? So as you were saying, I, I am not a big fan of, of of names either. We have a paper that came out this year with Leafly, with Nick Jacomis from, from Leafly. Yeah. So I it was one of the best collaborations that I've ever had. Such a beautiful paper and the figures which were. I was very involved in making the figures um, pretty. Those figures, we, sh- we, we have there that there's some strains that have less variation than others. You know, for example, Girl Scout cookies doesn't mean anything, but there's other varieties that, that do have more consistency, probably they're clone based. However, as you were mentioning, so there's something, any phenotype, any physical characteristic, whichever it is, it's a product of genes and environment, right? So, um, so there is some component that is genetic. There's some component that is environmental. And one of the textbooks example is human height. If your parents are tall, it's likely that you're going to be tall. If your parents are short, it's likely that you're going to be short. However, there is some environmental component and it's usually due to what you ate, particularly when you were young. So if you were, if you had a good nutrition, it's it's likely that you're going to achieve the maximum height that you could have achieved given your genetics. Right. So, um, so with, with human height, we know that it's around 80% um, genetics and 20% um, environment with cannabis. We don't know how much variation is due. And especially with something as, as the chemotype, as these cannabinoids and these terpenes, we know that there is a genetic component. We know that if you have particular genes, if your plant has these particular genes, you're likely to produce THC or CBD or et cetera. But the amounts and the ratios, we don't know how much that is due to genes and that is to environment. So not only we have to quantify that, but we also have to figure out what are the best conditions in order to grow this weed so that you can achieve the maximum potential, which is more or less what I am trying to figure out now with my current job, because I'm working with farmers and it's like, okay, what is the best environment that you can have? What are the best lights or best uh, soil? Or is it aquaponics or is it cocoa? Or is it, you know, like what sort of fertilizer do you have to have chicken poop or, or, or tomato fertilizer, you know, all of that in order for you to achieve the best weed 
hemp because I'm not working with THC. Hemp, hemp. Yes. So it's the best hemp that you can achieve. So, but I do think that we need to understand how the physical characteristics in the plant, I mean, everything, right, are due to genes and the environment in order to figure out like the best possible scenario. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think Kimberly was telling me her favorite uh, strain is Alaskan Thunderfuck. That's one of her. Okay. That's, one of her. <laughs> that's so much. I'm just checking if you were listening. Obviously I am. And no. <laughs> that wasn't it? That wasn't the right one? <laughs> Although it's interesting because like that's a lot of like, that's a lot of the debate about like how much we want the consumer to like go deep and do this research themselves or how much should be done for them and you trust it, right? Like, for example, I don't really research, and I know you're going to say something opposite of me, Lynn. (laughs) But what I'm saying is when I go and buy vitamin A or vitamin C, I'm not necessarily reading what type of vitamin A or vitamin C it is and how bio, like whatever it says on the bottle is what I'm buying. And I trust that the brand has figured out like, the right milligram, like that all that work has been done for me. And I do think sometimes in cannabis, why it's intimidating is like, we, we, we want consumers to do a lot of this work. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what I was saying. That's what I was saying because your vitamin A or your vitamin D is just that. It's an isolate, it's a distillate, it's a vitamin. Yes, you're right about the bioavailability and the method of consumption. and Where it came from, all that stuff, I don't know. But but when we're talking about cannabis, there's so many different components. Unless you're getting a formulation that is a sublingual or something that's created, that's measurable, that is consistent every single time, that becomes... A more of a nutraceutical type of product. And if you and if it's created this way, then anywhere you go to your GNC, your vitamin shop, or anywhere, you're gonna pick it up and it's gonna be consistent every single time. But when you actually have a plant that grows in nature, and what you're trying to do is replicate that, which has all these different components. You have the genetics of the plant. You have, and Daniela hates when I use this, so I'm going to say this, but it doesn't necessarily mean what I think it, it what I'm trying to convey, genetic drift. Uh, but you have, yeah, I, know, I know you hate that when I say that, but you have, you have different variations in the genetics. Also, you're trying to take a plant that naturally grew in a certain environment. So it has these uh, genetics that are, that are, for this specific cultivar that grew in this specific soil that has these environmental conditions that were stressed in this way to be able to, as Danielle was saying, so the height is a perfect example. So you have the genetics that are 80% built in, but in order for this plant to have its optimal, what it's supposed to have, you actually have to add the environment. Do you have the right humidity levels? Do you have the right temperature? Are you stressing the plant in its every stage very similar to what it was in its environment because you keep crossing and crossing all these different uh, you know chemical varieties you're also having all these different things so now you cross something that or that grew originally in Hawaii with something that grew in South Africa well what does that all mean so it's very very difficult for us to get to a point where we're getting that consistency unless we actually make them yes and so something I, okay so several things about what you said. Inbreeding is crucial, right? And inbreeding, you know, if you want something that it's really inbred, it's not just four generations. 
it's more than eight. So probably 20 would be great. For example, your chihuahua or your, right? That, that has been a lot of inbreeding. You have, when I, when I tell you German shepherd and you close your eyes, you think about a German shepherd and not about a Rottweiler. Why? Because they are inbred and they have specific characteristics in cannabis. We don't have that. And in order to reach a particular variety that has the same characteristics, like, like corn or soy or any other crop, you need to have multiple, multiple, multiple generations of inbreeding, which has not happened in cannabis. Okay, regarding genetic drift, genetic drift is not when you clone an individual and it builds mutation. That is called mutation accumulation. Genetic drift is a form, it's a way of evolution. Evolution usually happens due to natural selection, which is when you choose the individuals that are gonna be the parents for next generation's offspring. I'm gonna choose the ones that have the highest THC or the ones that are tallest or the ones that smell like pine, right? Whatever, that is selection, right? In, in natural selection, that is artificial selection. Natural selection is when nature chooses them, you know, the one that runs the fastest against the, the lion, the cheetah that runs the fastest, that's the one that reproduces. Now, drift, it's random. It's when, when it's a random sampling of genes of alleles in a population. It is stronger when you have a small population. Random genetic drift is stronger when you have a small population. Natural selection is stronger when you have a, a larger population. There are, and, and there's a bunch of, of math models regarding that, but, but that's something that I really, you know, as an evolutionary biology, when people talk about drift and random genetic drift, trying to say mutation accumulation, you can just say mutation accumulation due to clonal reproduction, which is a thing, you know, if you're, making clones and making clones. And that was something that I did in my PhD, right? You, you clone yourself, clone yourself, clone yourself. There is, there is mutational buildup that you cannot get rid of. Right. Well, I, I said that, I said that on purpose. So you can actually explain that because I know you don't like when I, when people are using genetic drift. So I'm glad you explained yeah, that. And that was <laughs> the same guy that told me like, <laughs> I have been growing with, I am a pet and I've been growing with, and, I'm, and then he says that, and I'm like, dude, good luck. Glad to meet you. Goodbye. And, and for the record, I just want to say Hershey is a Chihuahua mini pincher mix. That's what I was told. So her genetics are not pure Chihuahua. <laughs> it's so it's a it's a mutt. And of course, that's we're, the we're, better. We're all mutts. <laughs> we're all mutts. <laughs> we're all mutts. Which which I am pro, right? Because then you have these breeds, and you have this. What's the the one? I think it's it's a bulldog or whatever that they cannot even breed. Yeah, right? you've and that's we overbred. Yeah, that's a problem with inbreeding. Inbreeding comes with certain consequences. And one of the consequences is, you know, your fitness. Your fitness may be lower. You may have less babies or you may have this in, in these dog breeds that have these tumors, these cancerous tumors, or, or you cannot breathe or you can right because there's been so much inbreeding. If you read about the Spanish kings and queens, there was, I think it was Felipe. I don't know. If yeah. Felipe, that, yeah. that he was completely boink because there was inbreeding and cousin marrying brother and brother marrying sister and etc. That's yeah. a consequence of inbreeding. Yeah. And they had their Rothschild family, for instance, because the, the bankers for all the Kings, they ended up marrying their cousins and continuing to do that as well, as far as what I read. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. All right. So uh, now we're going to ask you really, really difficult questions. So this was the easy part of the interview. Now this is the difficult part. So get ready. Um, please describe your first experience with cannabis. 
<laughs> I have a job that I want to keep. Well, you don't, you're not saying it now. You could have said it uh, when you were 12. Yeah, I know. But, you know, I'm not. You, so, okay. So my first experience with cannabis was I was young. I was probably 14. I mm-hmm. had a boyfriend at a time that I talked recently to because uh, unfortunately his mother died. So um, I, I had smoked it before, but I had never gotten really high. You know, sometimes you smoke it and you don't get high. But it was the first time and I had these blue shoes and I was walking on the street and I kind of like the shoes were walking and I was kind of looking at the shoes, but it wasn't me really. And I would tell him all this and it's like, you're high. This is what happens when you're high. And then it doesn't happen anymore that much, but I would get really giggly. I would just yeah. laugh and not, not that much. I think that you lose that giggly. I know. I miss that. Uh, getting together with your friends when you're young and just laughing your ass off at stupid stuff. I yeah, I, I see young kids doing it all the time. So jealous of that. How do we I get know, back me to too, that? Me too. But I guess that happens when you get into adulthood, you become yeah. boring. Man. Yeah. Not Kimberly, though. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> um, so being a music person, uh, myself and, and Kimberly as well, what was the last, uh, what was the first concert that you ever attended? The first concert that I ever you remember. Yes, it was a rock band, a rock band from Bogota that they went to Cali. So my dad is a university professor mm-hmm. and in a public university, Universidad del Valle. And at that time, the students had taken one of the buildings. Mm-hmm. They lived there. And so sometimes they um, would have rock bands. And, um, and it, that was 1280 Almas. Oh. Not, not Juanes? No, Juanes? that's the only band. That's the only band that I know. Juanes was in a in a metal band. Yeah, yeah, that's why I brought it up. Yeah, so they actually also played there in 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 a, in, in that building in Espacio right. Libre. It was a free space, Espacio Libre 382, free space 382, which was the building 382, building mm-hmm. 382. So that was yeah, but um, but I I know yeah, I can see that you have a Miles Davis T-shirt, and I I think I that, do. I saw you with a Pink Floyd t-shirt at some point. Absolutely. And Pink Floyd, my dad got me into Pink Floyd and um, my favorite album, I think, it's Atom Heart Mother. Ooh, from them. love that one. Yeah. Yep, yep. And Pulse. I also really yeah. love the live album. So yeah, and, <clears throat> yeah. my dad got me re- into, into some, there were some things, you know, like um, um, Grateful Dead. Yeah. There were some bands that we did not get there when I was in Colombia, and which I'm glad because now as an adult, you know, there's only space for one eight-minute song band, and that is people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about others. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Stairway to Heaven was a, a seven-and-a-half-minute song, too. So, But yeah, jam bands, I, I understand exactly what you mean. I've been to a couple of dead shows, and more than a couple and when the song goes on for 20 minutes, uh, yeah, you need you need other substances to be able to get your your attention because 20 minute jam songs I don't get. Yeah, but I do. I I did dance a lot when I was in college. Oh my god, that's why I have really bad knees right now because I I could not wait for it to be Friday to just go dancing. Like I would kind of like uh, jumping. Yeah. yeah. Some some house music. So what what has cannabis meant in your life? Oh my god, so much! Like 
honestly, you know, I, I would, it, it, I learned so much. I learned about plants. Like now I think I'm kind of like a plant biologist, I guess, even though I've never really taken a plant biology class. Um, but I learned about plants and now I teach plant biology, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, learned about genomics. I, my friends are all related to the cannabis industry in Colorado. I made friends, mommy friends. Oh, my professional circle, my right. So, so it's it's meant so much for me. My job, like I have a job thanks to cannabis. Final question: Please describe what your room looked like growing up. What my room looked. So, I used to have a pom band when I was a high schooler, and I had I played the drums. So I had a drum set in my room and I had a Kurt Cobain um poster ah. and I know not Dave Grohl you're a drummer you didn't have Dave Grohl you had Kurt Cobain yeah because <laughs> I think that that was the one I was able to get I don't know um I did get the Foo Fighter CD was yeah I, I did get that um but um but yeah I think that that was it was painted gray and pink Nice. Uh, yeah. Well, great. So, Danielle, where can people find out more about you, can reach out to you, and can engage with you? So, okay, so I run a small nonprofit organization, the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, and the website is agriculturalgenomics.org. I am on Twitter and lately on Instagram, but I, I, I'm so terrible at it. Um, you're so much better, Len. It's like picture, you know, like, you know, I, well, I'm, I'm trying to learn from Kimberly because she's, she's the model for Instagram. Oh, I have to follow you. Kimberly. Um, and I am Kana Bakana. Bakana is cool. So I'm Kana Bakana in um, Instagram. I used to be Kana's genomics until recently, but now that I'm expanding more to the genome, I changed it. Um, I am on LinkedIn. Daniela Vergara. Uh, you can also look for me. I mean, I guess that if you Google me, Daniela Vergara, there's a Daniela Vergara in Argentina and she's a, 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 a radio or a TV host. That's not me. Um, <laughs> but if you Google Daniela Vergara cannabis, I think that you'll find me. I'm now working for the extension program at Cornell University. And if you Google Daniela Vergara, see you Boulder. And then my website is Vergara Science. Dot com. That's my for my professional website. And then Twitter, you know, I rant about politics as well. So if you don't want to talk politics, <laughs> not a good idea to follow me. <laughs> well, then I'll follow you on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not the politics guy. But <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Danielle, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, it was great. What well, great contribution, and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I had fun. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, 
a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.